Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. I was coming home one day, and, and uh, I was about, oh man, I think I was about eight years old. So chocolate was high on my priority list, okay? And I remember walking into the kitchen, and uh, uh, at that point, my stepmom was baking something, and, and up on the countertop, I saw chocolate. And of course, my brother, he's uh, just barely a year uh, younger than I am, and so he and I were tagging along. We had come in from a bike ride, and, and uh, we saw that chocolate, and both of our eyes locked in on that chocolate. We, we didn't care uh, to say hi to anybody else. We didn't do anything. We just locked in on that chocolate. And clearly, um, that's where our eyes were focused, and so my stepmom recognized that, and she, she asked us, she said, well, boys, how you doing? Would you like some chocolate? And we're thinking, does Billy Graham have a quiet time? I mean, are you serious? Right? <laughs> we're like, yeah, we want some chocolate. Of course we want some chocolate. So she began to cut the chocolate up in front of us. <laughs> oh, man. I can still remember standing there. My mouth was watering. I thought, I, and I was very careful to watch what, what pieces were the biggest ones. Right? Because I was going to get them. I'm the older one. I could get my brother out of the way, kind of shove him and do a couple things to make sure I maneuvered. And so she, she separated it all and she put it up on the countertop. She gave us a napkin. She said, okay, have, have as much as you want. And it was like, seriously, are you kidding me? I mean, that's like, wow. So I grabbed the piece real quick. And in my left hand, I had a piece and I'm grabbing with my right hand and I'm trying to get as much as I could. And, and I'm trying to get the biggest pieces that there are. And my brother's doing the same thing. And then I took this huge chunk of chocolate and it was glorious and it was amazing. And it just looked like fudge from heaven. And I stuck it in my mouth, took a bite and about threw up. Cause it was unsweetened chocolate. <laughs> Have you ever had that? It's gross. <laughs> it's terrible. You got to put sugar with it in order to make it taste good, you know? I, I want to encourage you in something. We're going to look at a, just a very simple thing this morning, and we're going to talk about grace. Because in Acts chapter 15, it's all about grace. It's all about the grace of God. What makes the church unique? What makes our story unique? It's the grace of God. And I want to encourage you in this because I think this is essential to understand. A lack of understanding of and or walking in God's grace in Christ dooms the church to look like any other religious institution, self-serving and without life. See, if it's not for the grace of God, then we don't experience God. If it's not for the grace of God, then this morning is utterly worthless. If it's not for the grace of God, what testimony do we have? What is it that we can say that we're celebrating? Us? God's grace is why we celebrate. God's grace is why we worship. If you look at Acts chapter 15, I just want to remind you of a couple things in this because this was such a major moment for the early church. Acts chapter 15 Verse 1 states, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So at the very onset of this whole conversation in chapter 15, the reason for the council, the reason Paul 
Barnabas are sent down to Jerusalem from Antioch in order to get the information to the leaders in the church in Jerusalem is because there were some individuals that came into the church in Antioch and they began to tell the Gentiles there that you can't be saved unless you're circumcised and unless you keep the law. So it completely undercuts the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the message of the gospel of grace. Paul understood that. They had argued with these individuals, and nothing was settled, and they knew this was a major, major issue. And so they were sent to Jerusalem. Now, on the way, they begin to celebrate. We've kind of looked through that. They began to share all the different testimonies of the Gentiles. And Jewish believers are celebrating. They're glad as a result of what they hear that God is doing in the Gentiles, through the Gentiles, the way the Holy Spirit came upon them, all the different factors there of salvation. They're excited They get down to Jerusalem, the elders and the leaders greet them, they come into the church in effect, and they're brought in with love, and immediately, some believers who used to be Pharisees stand. And if you look at Acts chapter 15, verse 5, it says, some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed, these were believers, unlike, I believe, the former group in Antioch. They stood up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. So what do we got here? We've got an attack on grace from the perspective of coming to Christ and getting saved. A personal relationship with God the Father through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ by grace alone, not by works. But now we've got believers in the church standing and saying, well, maybe they're saved. But now they've got to keep the law. <laughs> Peter In Acts chapter 15, verse 11, stands up, he says, We believe that we're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Interesting wording here. We're saved in the same way they are. Who's the they? It's the Gentiles. He doesn't say they are saved in the same way we are. He doesn't put them in first position. He puts the Gentiles in first position, which is really fascinating to watch. He affirms their salvation. He was there when Cornelius was saved. He was there when the Holy Spirit came upon them in Cornelius' home. And he had testified to this. And he says that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. That's it. Grace plus anything is no longer grace. You don't have to add to grace in order to become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And once you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't have to add to anything. Because God has done something for us that's a done deal. We now get to walk with him. And as believers, we walk with him. How? By grace. We believe. As you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk ye in him. How did you receive him? By grace through faith. How should we be walking in him? By grace through faith. I think it's a fascinating attack here, and I think it's important for the church to understand what are we talking about. Because what's interesting to me is in verses 28 and 29, James stands up, the leader in the church of Jerusalem, He, in effect, affirms what Peter has to say. And after much argument, and the English here doesn't give 
this passage justice. We're not just talking a polite little nice handshake. and We're talking about an all-out battle about this thing. James says, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. Now, I don't know if you caught this last week, but here's the point. He's saying, we're not going to lay on you a burden other than this. Which indicates that they're still putting a burden on them. It's not perhaps as heavy. It's not perhaps as weighty. But they give four essentials. Fornication cuts across the board. That's for all times, all people, all places, all culture. That has nothing to do with culture. That has everything to do with sin. And then he also gives them three things which are specific to their culture that would have been offensive to the Jewish believers. And he wants to make sure that their testimony is not diminished by them participating in something that he knows will offend the Jewish believers. So he, in effect, says, abstain from these things. Abstain from them. Now, face value, that seems all well and good, but the question is, did he just place the believers under law by telling them, here are four things, here are four essential things that you got to do? And how do the believers walk in that? How do we walk under the commandments of God? How do we walk under the directives of the Lord. Love one another. Make disciples. Don't do this, do this. How do we do that? I would suggest to you that it's by the grace of God. I would suggest that we are able to walk in the commandments, under the commandments, with the right attitude, the right heart, the right motivation, because of God's grace in us and his strength, his life, his everything that is available to us fully at the point of salvation. We are saved by grace. It has nothing to do with what we could do for God. It has nothing to do with what we've done. It has nothing to do with our sincerity. It has everything to do with simply believing, which means to be persuaded that we need the Lord. Now, as believers, we have the opportunity to walk with God by grace. We experience his power, his life, his strength. And so when we're told to do things, when there are commands that we are given, it comes under the category of what God is able to empower us in because of who he is, because of his grace towards us. There's two ways of looking at this because faith clearly comes into this. And I think a simple way of putting faith is this. I am persuaded that there is nothing on my part. I have no ability. Every day of your life, every day of my life, we have the opportunity to walk in God's grace. We have an opportunity to walk with God by faith, which simply means that we are persuaded that there's nothing on my part in this. The question is, are we persuaded in that? Do we look at circumstances and situations and say, I know how to fix this. I know how to do this, so thank you, God, for saving me. I'm glad that you gave me life. Now I'm going to go do it for you. Faith is simply the acknowledgement that there's nothing on my part in this. And grace is the understanding and persuasion that it's everything on God's part. It's his ability, not mine. So I get to walk with God in that. Folks, that's why we pray. 
That's why, that's why we pray. Because we recognize that it's nothing on our part, it's all his. And we learn to trust him and walk with him and, and be led by him and, and be sensitive to where he's going, what he's doing. And we recognize that God is at work all around us. And we recognize that God lives in us in order to do through us what we couldn't do on our own, what he never has expected us to be able to do on our own. Abstain from fornication. Why is it that James could put that on the believers? Because he knows Christ lives in them in order to perform that. That God will give them joy in the midst of the direction. I want to share with you six essentials about grace this morning. I love C.S. Lewis. I've shared with, this, with you before. He was at that conference at Oxford University, and they were having a big meeting. People from all over the world had come, and, and they were going to have this discussion about Christianity. And C.S. Lewis knew some of them. Evidently, he hadn't been invited to the conference, which is mind-boggling in and of itself. But he came in, started greeting people, and he said, well, what's, what's your conference about? What are you doing here? And they said, oh, we're having a big discussion about what makes Christianity different than any and every other religion in the world. And I love his response. He looked at them and he said, well, that's easy. It's grace. And he walked out. (laughs) Grace is what makes this unique. It's what makes the church vibrant. It's the gratitude that we have towards God on the basis of what he's done for us, not on what we've done for him or what we could ever do for him. Six essentials. First, God's grace is revealed in Christ. Do you realize that we wouldn't know anything about grace if it weren't for the Lord Jesus Christ? I think that's essential to understand. If you look at John chapter 1 and you look at verses 14 and following, the first 18 verses of of John chapter 1 are powerful. I think I spent about eight months preaching through those. (laughs) They're awesome, aren't they? I mean, it's amazing. This is all about the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that he came to this earth. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, the unique one. And then he says this, full of grace and truth, overflowing with grace and truth. Verse 16, he says, for of his fullness we have all received. And and he's very specific here because he's already said, those who believe in his name have been given the right to be children of God. We have all received, he's speaking specifically to believers who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this, and grace upon grace. And I think that's kind of inadequate. Grace upon grace, the word upon really is in anticipation of. It has the idea of replacing. Grace, replacing grace. Grace in anticipation of grace. Now, what's he talking about? Well, he's saying that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been given the right to become a child of God. Now we have all received of his fullness. And what dwells in Christ? The fullness of grace and truth. What dwells in us? The fullness of grace and truth. Why? Because Christ lives in us. And we begin to walk by grace. We begin to walk in the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So every circumstance we come to, God has led us into that circumstance or he's allowed that circumstance. And as a result, we need his grace. And as we walk in that circumstance, whatever it may be, 
We begin to experience the grace of God. We begin to experience all the fullness of who he is in us as well as through us. And as we use that grace that he gives to us, as we say yes to him in the midst of those circumstances, and we walk with him in the midst of those circumstances, God begins to replace the grace that we have begun to use. In other words, we never run out. If you've been through a circumstance, you feel like you're about to run out of grace, you're about to run out of all the things that entail that, you're running out of patience, you're running out of wisdom, not sure where to go, what to do. (laughs) Jesus Christ is inexhaustible, he's infinite, he's able, he's the fullness of God's grace to us, and he will never go dry. He goes on, and he makes it very clear. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten, the unique one of God, who is in the bosom of the Father, speaking of Jesus, he has explained him. Grace is realized, is revealed in Christ. When we have a true picture of Christ and we understand who he really is, we see the full expression of the grace of God to each and every one of us. Well, the second essential about grace is that we're saved by grace through faith. Christ has rescued us from the domain of darkness. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Salvation is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We receive the Lord Jesus Christ, not on the basis of our effort, not on the basis of merit, but rather on the basis of grace. Because God offers himself to us freely and abundantly. And if we believe in him, we have the opportunity to experience him, to be forgiven of all of our sin because of what he did for us at the cross. You know John 3.16 well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have what? Eternal life. We've been rescued from the domain of darkness into the domain of light, the kingdom of light, God's kingdom. God has come to live within us. We get to experience his grace in that rescuing. And now as believers, we get to walk in it day by day by day because he indwells us. Third essential about grace is that the work of God for the believer is to believe. Did you catch that? The work of God for the believer is to believe. John chapter 6, look at that quick. John chapter 6, verses 27 and following. He's talking to the Pharisees, which is interesting because in the background story of Acts chapter 15, it's the believers who used to be Pharisees that stood up and said, well, now that they're saved, they've got to they gotta keep the law. They need to be circumcised. They need to keep the law of Moses. So the mindset is being dragged into the Christian faith from their former manner of life. And here are some Pharisees, perhaps some of the same men that were in the church in Jerusalem. 
He says, don't work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, the Father, God, has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? We want that seal. We want to be approved. What can we do to earn it? What do we do that we work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work, singular, of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Believe. Believe in me. Believe in Jesus. Believe in what I'm able to do for you because you can't do this for yourself. See, when we talk about grace, we're talking about believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking about what he is able to do for us, how he loves us, how he went to the cross for us, how he shed his own blood so that we might be translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We're talking about being transformed. We're talking about the whole picture of somebody who is separated from God because of sin and has now been made a child of God, who was once far off, but now has been brought near, who was once without God, without hope, but now has God and has hope. And it's not because of anything we've done. It's because of God's grace. As believers, God's grace is now a part of everything that we are because Christ himself lives within us. And when we begin to walk with him by faith, persuaded that God is able, persuaded that I have no part in this other than to, be, to, to believe, in the midst of that, I get to experience his strength and all that he is. Fourthly, God's grace empowers us to be freed from the slavery of sin. Now, that seems pretty obvious, but I think for many believers, that's a real struggle. We say, well, yeah, we were saved. We're now a child of God. How do we deal with sin now? And many believers fall back up under the trap of the law, thinking there's a performance, that there's merit in this, that we've been told not to do these things, and so, boy, we better do it. God saved us, so now we got to go do it. Friends, if, if we could overcome sin, why in the world did Jesus Christ go to the cross in the first place? The law wasn't given as a ladder in order for us to somehow get better, to prove ourselves and our worth to God. The law was given specifically to show us how desperately in need of a Savior we really are. As believers, the question is, are we by faith walking with the Lord? Romans chapter 6, verse 14 says, Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Notice, you are under something. We are under something. It's the grace of God. There's a very specific parameter here. No question. But what's interesting is sin shall not be master over you. When is it that sin is not your Lord? The word master is Lord. When is it for the believer that sin is not our Lord. It's when we're under grace, not when we're under law. It's when we're dependent upon him and we're walking with him, not when we're striving in and of our own strength to try to accomplish something that God knows we can't. Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 7 says, The mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. I love German shepherds. You know that. 
And I've got a wonderful little Maltese named Bennett now that uh, after 22 years of marriage, um, <laughs> I'm thinking I have become very domesticated, you know. Um, praise God. But I love my shepherd. I, I've told you this story, but I have to tell it again. The idea of hostility here is the innate nature of our flesh is to react and respond to the law. The law is the trigger which causes our flesh to react in a sinful way. I was outside with uh, my two German shepherds at that time. It had snowed. Holland was very young. I think she was only two years old. We didn't even have boots for her, so we took baggies, right? Put them on her feet. We put like two or three layers of socks I think she had underwear on her head. I don't even think we had, I don't even think we had like a, a, a correct hat. I can't remember, but I was taking her outside. I'm dad, man. We're going outside. It snowed. This is beautiful. And so we went out there. Man, it was pristine, gorgeous countryside, absolutely beautiful. The roads were shut down. We were out in the countryside anyway. Hardly anybody went past us as it is. But with the snow, there was nobody. Quiet, beautiful. My dogs were playing around in the front yard, big, huge, uh, seven, eight-acre area, running through the snow. I'm building a snowman with Holland. (laughs) And all of a sudden, I heard a sound. And as soon as I heard it, I knew I was in trouble. See, my neighbors had two Rottweilers. And those Rottweilers, by the way, I don't like Rottweilers, They would literally come to our house. My dog stayed in a pen outside, and they would lay down outside of the pen, and they would stare at my two German shepherds. Kind of like, we're free, you're not. And my shepherds would go berserk. Three o'clock in the morning, man, Flip, my dog, he was huge. He could put his paws on my shoulder. He came from championship stock. He could take things out, okay? He's going crazy, and I'd have to go out there, and there's those Rottweilers, you know, and I was kind of bitter at my neighbors about this. I didn't appreciate it. So all of a sudden, in the midst of this, I heard this sound down the road, and I can distinctly remember looking over, and I had a perfect picture of my two neighbors with their two Rottweilers walking down the road, one male, one female. I also saw my dog flip about 20 feet away from me, far enough that I couldn't get him. He didn't have a leash on. He didn't have rope on. We didn't have him tied down, and Flip had heard the, the, the noise as well, and I thought, I'm dead. I'm in trouble here. Sure enough, Flip locked in on that Rottweiler. And literally, and I don't know if you know German Shepherds, when they lock in on something, it's over. You got to grab them. They, They don't hear you. Their ears are forward. They're moving. And he took off sprinting full speed at these people. And the whole time I'm thinking to myself, Lord, help. (laughs) Right? Lord, help. I'm running through the snow as fast as I could go. It was about 10 inches. Right? Flip. And they, these people, bless their hearts, they, they were doing a jig. I thought they were Irish for a minute, you know. Their, their dogs are running around their legs. They got all the, all the wire, all the stuff. And my dog flipped. Bless his heart. He hit that male Rottweiler. He didn't go after the female. He went after the male. He hit that male Rottweiler, knocked that thing over, and literally within one second was on his throat. 
I got there right in time, and I grabbed Flip, because I had been yelling at him the whole time, to no avail, just to let the neighbors know that I was trying to do something. And I grabbed Flip, and I pulled him off. I'm saying, no, Flip, no, Flip, don't do that. And inside, I was really going, a boy, way to go. <laughs> I didn't have to teach that dog to react that way. He did it instinctually. He did it immediately. He did it because he was hostile towards those other dogs. See, when the law is placed over us and we try to keep that law in and of our own strength, we are hostile towards the law and immediately we react against the law. That's why we need grace because God's grace empowers us to be freed from the slavery of sin. Fifthly, the work of God is to conform us to his image, bringing glory to his name and through us produce fruit. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Conform simply means to be changed or fashioned, to be made into the likeness of. Got a short little video I want you to look at real quick. you something. When you're watching that, can that butterfly take any credit? Can that butterfly suddenly say, oh, look look what I did. Look at this. This is so cool. I worked hard at creating that cocoon. And man, I suffered in having to be in that cocoon for as long as I was in that cocoon. But now look at me. Folks, when we're talking about being conformed to the image of Christ, we're talking about a work that God has to do in and through us. We're talking about what God does on our behalf. The question is, are we willing to say yes to him? The question is, are we walking with him? The question is, are we walking by his grace? John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We can't mature ourselves. We can't accomplish the works of God. If it were left up to us in the flesh, we would always go contrary to the things of God. It's God's grace. It's his strength. It's his power in us that accomplishes these things. Lastly, God's grace energizes us, empowers us in our work with or for Christ. What are we talking about here? Are we talking about some kind of a a passivity where we don't have anything to do, where there's no activity in our lives, where we just sit on the couch waiting for the job and, and we're not out there looking for it? No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a conscious moment by moment daily decision to say yes to God and be persuaded about what God has said concerning us, which is that we don't have anything to offer him. All we have is to give him our lives and he's the one that's able to do everything in and through us. That's what we're talking about. And in the midst of that, 
God begins to lead us. He begins to strengthen us. He begins to change us. He begins to metamorphosize us and transform us, to fashion us into his image. And we begin to serve in all kinds of different ways. 1 Corinthians 15 says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul didn't say, look at what a beautiful butterfly I am. Look at what I've become because of all the hard work that I've put into it. And he says, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. See, as the Lord transforms us and as we say yes to him, we begin to learn to walk by faith moment by moment, trusting what he's able to do. Then God begins to conform us to his image and God begins to lead us in the righteous works that he has planned for us to walk in before the foundation of the earth and he empowers us to do those righteous works. Without God's grace, without him, there will be no change in my life. And I just have a a short list here, about 50 things. (laughs) There's no eternal life, John 17, 3. There's no life or purpose. He is our life. You can see that in Philippians 1, 21 or in Colossians 3, 4. There's no victory over sin. There's no renewing of my mind. There's no genuine love for one another or the lost. There's no depth and relationship within the body of Christ. There's no hope. There's no wisdom. There's no blessing. There's no dying to self. There's no willingness to give up my rights for the sake of my brother. There's no good works that stand the test of the Lord. There's no eternal fruit. And folks, without the grace of Christ, there is no testimony, not only with what we say, but in the change that takes place within our lives to the lost. None. I could go on and on and on. What makes us unique as a church body? It's Jesus Christ himself, who is the grace of God to each and every one of us. Are we walking in that? Are we being changed? Are we being transformed? Is his life being revealed through us in the way that we respond in the midst of circumstances, in the way that we treat one another, in the way that we care for those who perhaps don't care for us? How are we walking with Christ in his grace? A church without grace is just religion. A people without God's grace is empty, tasteless, and meaningless. Praise God for his grace. Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.